sacraments we've been doing. But we're looking at unto whom is baptism to be administered. So last time we were looking at what baptism is, what it symbolizes, and what it actually does, that it admits one into the visible church and, in a sense, obligates them to live for the Lord. And so now we're looking at who baptism is to be administered to. And so the answer to Catechism 166 here says that baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church, and so strangers from the covenant of promise, till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. But infants descending from parents, either both or but one of them professing faith in Christ and obedience to him, are in that respect within the covenant and to be baptized. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, thank you that your grace uh, comes to us in so many ways and that you don't just deal with us as isolated individuals, but as families and households. And thank you for um, your love for families. And thank you especially for drawing us into the family of faith and the household of God. And we ask that we would ever know uh, what it is to be a beloved child of a heavenly father. Lord, we pray your blessing and help in our study now for Jesus' sake. Amen. So before we even look at infant baptism, we see here uh, the agreement we have about adult baptism. So we read that baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church. And so strangers from the covenant of promise till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. Okay, so for those that are of age, it's required if they are going to receive this sign of covenant membership they are to profess their faith in Christ. So we see this right away in Acts 2. Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then later, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Reception of the word is, a, is, an, is faith there. That's the idea. Or in Acts 8.12, That when the people believed Philip, who was preaching to them things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So we have these ideas here of repenting, believing, and receiving. All aspects of faith, of receiving the word. And so we would say that a condition, the condition of baptism, is this profession of faith in order to be a member of the visible church. And it's important that we note that because we can't see people's internal hearts, what we're talking about is a credible profession of faith, not the true existence of faith. Because we can never truly see faith in someone's heart, and we can never have 100% certainty whether their internal faith matches their profession. But we offer what we often refer to as the judgment of charity, that we charitably judge what their mouth professes, um, and on that basis, receive them into the church. And so it's credible profession, which is namely this declaration of allegiance to Christ, of agreement to obey him, to walk in his ways and keep his commands. And in the early church, the first confession of faith, the most simple confession of faith was really simply, Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what the Christians said to set them apart from the culture. Jesus is Lord. That means Jesus, this human person, is so, so special that he's worth being acknowledged as the Lord of all things and worth being obeyed, followed, and, um, and adored in all things. And so to be a Christ confessor, that's what it is to be a Christian, right? A Christian, one who follows, who professes, and acknowledges Christ's lordship in all things.
And if you think about it, really ideally, in any sort of organization or group, membership in that group ought to imply an agreement with the tenets and beliefs of that group, right? If you, thought of, if you think about any sort of organization, whether like a political group or a certain nonprofit, if someone wants to be a member of it, you are working on the base assumption that they agree with what you're doing. And if someone wants to join the group who disagrees with what you're doing, they're probably sneaking in for some nefarious purpose, or they're doing it, um, or say like uh, when a business person, they're giving to charity, but they only give to that charity for the cred of being seen that way in the community. You would say, hey, like that's in disingenuous. That's like either virtue signaling or doing that for selfish motives. And really they ought not be a member of that organization if they don't agree, right? If you would see that, that person as sneaking in. So just by virtue of being a part of a group, it implies there ought to be an agreement. And so a profession of faith is just determining that one's um, internal principles align with the church. And because we don't believe, as say the Roman Catholics do, that the baptism itself saves or imparts grace to someone, we have no motivation to ever baptize someone that doesn't agree with our principles. It's not in the baptizing that we suck them in. No, we want to ensure that, in a sense, the purity of the organization, the name, the church, is what we're talking about. Remember, as we talked, we talked last time about professional designations, right? There's a code of conduct. And so we don't accept people in to the church who are not willing to outwardly at least profess obedience and allegiance to Christ. And... Um, but again, we're going really just off a credible profession, right? We can't see the heart. And so it's a common mistake to think that baptism is for those who've reached a certain level of faith or have achieved a certain level of obedience. No, it's for those that can profess faith in Christ with a good and clean conscience. And uh, this kind of... This idea even kind of went off the rails in uh, the Puritan era, not so much about baptism, but about confession of faith, coming to the Lord's Supper, where they had such a high idea of what it meant to be converted that you started having to give these elaborate testimonies to very intense conversion experiences. And what that was really doing was sort of creating this bar that you have to have achieved this level of religious experience before you can be truly welcomed into the church community. So we want to watch that we don't put, again, baptism at the end of the road of discipleship, but keep it where, it where it is in scripture, at the beginning of the path of discipleship, the enrollment into the school of Christ in apprenticeship to him. And what's actually really cool about this is that in some ways, baptism can actually be a means of assurance for us. Because if the church receives us on a credible profession of faith, there is a sense in which we can receive ourselves on a credible profession of faith. Um, here's what I mean. People that have a lot of doubts about assurance, it's what, what you're trying to do is you're trying to pry into the deep recesses of your own heart to say, well, I think I believe, but do I really believe? I say I love Jesus, but do I actually in my depths love Jesus? And there's a sense in which as you, your heart is invisible to others, the depths of your heart are in some ways invisible to yourself as well. And that's why the scriptures tell us that no one can know the spirit of a man except the spirit of God in him, or that the depths of man are deep waters that need to be drawn out. And so you can actually get trapped in a cycle trying to figure out your true deepest motives. And there's a sense in which 
you can take your own word of your own profession and commitment and you just receive it and you walk it out. You don't keep trying to figure out whether it was true or genuine at some point. You walk it out in faith. And baptism as an objective symbol of your relationship to God via the church community can actually encourage you to walk it out. Um, Maybe uh, an analogy might be helpful here. So we know that in marriage, you have an objective relationship, but it ought to reflect a subjective truth of a true love for your spouse. And if someone was getting caught up with thinking, when I got married to my spouse, did I truly love them at that point? Did I truly love them? Um, Because if I didn't truly love them, maybe we weren't really married to begin with. You would say, no, that's not how it works. Your marriage is an objective reality, and it doesn't matter whether at that time you truly love them. What matters is that in light of your marriage, you are being faithful and loving to them now, and in light of this objective relationship, you're going to pursue and live out a subjective truth as best as you can. So in the same way, it's, it's no use trying to figure out, did I have true faith or repentance back then at some point? No, if you're baptized, you are obligated to walk it out and live it out, and the call is just to repent and believe today. And you don't need to try to figure out whether your repentance and faith were true at some point in the past, because the objective relationship calls you to walk it out, right? You've been brought into a relationship with the church, and you're obligated now to live in obedience to Jesus. And so baptism can actually be a means of assurance in this way. Does that make sense? Any, any clarifying questions? Yeah, Andrew. Baptism, I guess, outside of being baptized. Or like um, professional faith, like, um, I guess the former stuff, maybe if you have 15 or something in general. But like, because Piper has asked before why she can't have communion, and she's nine. Um, And I think she has faith. Mm -hmm. I guess that's a little bit different than the practice of baptism. Yeah, I think with confession of faith, um, what we're doing for the sacraments, we're looking at what are the conditions for reception, right? So we're saying here the conditions for reception of baptism are two, either professing faith in Christ or being born in a professing family. But there's another condition for reception of the Lord's Supper, which is the ability to actually do it, which necessitates the ability to um, examine yourself uh, the ability to like offer a um, a cognitive faith that truly receives it, um, which is why it's so. This actually can be a helpful thing to think of the difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper, because baptism is a one-time act. Its use to us is always our faith in the present being applied to that act in the past once. I remember my baptism, and as we'll see next time, improve on it. But the Lord's Supper doesn't have any historical benefit. I don't draw faith by remembering a Lord's Supper I took 10 years ago. I derive faith in my present reception of the Lord's Supper whenever we partake of it. So for a child that has not come to a place of being able to understand the Lord's Supper and receive its true benefits by faith with circumspection in the present, there's no point for them partaking because it's only going to be a benefit to them in the present. Whereas for baptism, our faith is always going backwards to it. And therefore, to receive it before you're able to exercise that faith isn't problematic. Because as soon as you can exercise faith, you can apply that to your baptism. Whereas in the Lord's Supper, you need present, active, cognitive 
uh, abilities in order to make use of it. Does that make sense as a distinction there? All right, so just as a ring and ceremony might mark an objective status in marriage, so does baptism. And it's up to you to know how to live up to it and into it, not to try to figure out whether it's true or not. And so you, don't, um, so you have to repent and believe every day, not try to know whether you did at some point. Um, and the call to look back on your marriage is a call to love your spouse now, in the present, not figure out whether you did truly then. And so it's through profession that one binds himself to the covenant community, and is able to claim the promises. Now, it talked about being strangers to the covenant of promise, right? In the Old Testament, the Gentiles were called strangers to the covenant of promise. They weren't in that sphere of the preaching of the gospel, of the acts of worship in the community. And so we see here that this is one way, and the main way we see in Scripture to join the church by baptism, by profession of faith. And we remember the New Testament era is unique in that the gospel is coming to groups of people for the first time. And so we don't actually get to see that transition to what does it look like for baptism in the second generation. But we're really seeing it in a missionary context here, where it's going to adults and families for the first time who are hearing it and receiving it and professing faith. But our answer continues that there's a second path to the reception of baptism. And that is that infants descending from parents, either both or but one of them professing faith in Christ and obedience to him, are in that respect within the covenant and to be baptized. Okay, there's two paths to gain a right to baptism. And at first, this really confuses a lot of people. And um, a lot of times when you talk to Baptists, they say this is a weird inconsistency that makes no sense to me. They would say, if adults need to profess faith, then obviously a child or infant needs to profess faith. But if the infant doesn't need to profess faith, then the adult doesn't need to profess faith. They say, well, you can't have it two ways. But we, we don't need to say that something has to be the same. There's a lot of ways where there's two paths to membership that um, I think apply, well not apply, but you can understand this if you think of other contexts, okay? So consider how can you become a citizen of this country? One, you can immigrate and profess your allegiance, take the pledge, recite the whatever, you know, you do the ceremony thing, to profess your agreement to abide by these laws and be a part of this nation. But if your children are born to you here, they're automatically citizens. Now, they might grow up, decide they hate the nation, and leave and move somewhere else at some point, but there are two ways, through profession and through birth. Um, there's also two ways to join a family, right? There's two ways to become a Davison. Julie became a Davison through professing her great love for me and agreeing to marry me, but our daughter is going to become a Davison automatically without any profession or willingness on her part. And we hope that she'll grow up and, in a sense, honor the family name, walk in the ways we raise her. But she might even cast off the family name at some point and depart, change her name to, I don't know, Star Humbucker and, you know, find whatever she wants. Who knows? But we acknowledge that in various states, you gain a certain membership by profession and by birth. And we acknowledge this in many areas of life. And it's the same way in the church. The two ways to join the church are by professing your allegiance to Christ or being born into a professing family and having that standing, that status, that name from birth. And so 
But first, like we must acknowledge here, it's only for children whose parents are these professing members. The parents have to already be professing householders, and they have the right to be citizens, and therefore their children are born into the privileges their parents have gained. And so the parents need to be within the visible church, not strangers to that covenant of promise that we mentioned here. And again, when we think covenant of promise, we're thinking visible church, the visible community of faith. And when we're talking about children being a covenant in, in the covenant, once again, we have to remember that this is them being in the external administration of the covenant, not necessarily having its internal reality or its internal substance. And that's why it's important in this answer. It says that by virtue of being born to believing parents, it says in that respect, children are in the covenant. Okay, They're not in the covenant in every way in their heart, necessarily having union with Christ, but in the respect of being born into a Christian home, they are in that respect within the Christian community, within the community of faith. And so to sum up, the two ways to have a right to baptism, by profession and by birth. And the key in considering the debate about baptism is not actually figuring out what the Bible says about baptism, but it's what the Bible says about children and whether the children of believers do have status and standing in the believing community. That's the biggest question. Okay, so that's um, summary. Now I want us to actually look at a bunch of specific texts and see how these help lead us to these conclusions. Um, any comments or questions at this point? Okay, already, let's start looking at some key texts. Okay, first off, Colossians 2, 11 to 12. We're reminded that in Christ you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein you also are raised with him through faith in the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. Now, it's an important point in Reformed theology of baptism is to see that there's a continuity in covenant signs, that what circumcision symbolized to the Israelites in many ways is what baptism symbolizes now. Not perfect correlation, but moderate correlation. And this text is not saying that baptism replaces circumcision, but it's pointing us to the fact that they're both representing similar realities, right? It talks here about circumcision. It's a putting off of the body of sins, right? So that physical putting off of a piece of the flesh is representing an internal putting off of sin. In the same way, baptism is representing a dying to sin, a putting, a washing away of sin to walk in new life. There's a lot of similarities, um, and it's in that text in Acts 8, it mentions, interestingly, it says, these people professed faith in Christ and were baptized by Philip, both men and women. And it really makes a point to mention that both men and women were baptized, because that's, I think, hinting to us the fact that women now receive the covenant sign. There's a greater um, marking, a greater inclusivity in that fact that not only do males now receive the covenant sign, but females do receive it as well in baptism. And uh, I wanna show you this little picture about, uh, do you wanna make that little guy big? Just click it and then just drag it from a corner. Yeah, there you go. So this is, I'm not going to go through all of these, but I want you to see circumcision and baptism 
are remarkably similar in scripture. They're both signs and seals of the covenant of grace. They both symbolize union with Christ. They both symbolize regeneration, remission of sins. They both oblige one to walk in the newness of life. They both initiate one into covenant membership. They both are given to entire households. Um, They both do not do anything by the mere outward reception. Um, They're both considered sins to neglect or condemn. Um, You can be saved without them, and they are both administered only once. They're both given to offspring, and they're both given to non-elect in the covenant community. And this is a little meme, so they kind of make a joke of it. They say, see the difference? Neither do we. Ha ha, that covenant baptism. I couldn't find one that doesn't have uh, that hashtag on it. But anyways. Um, So we notice with circumcision... Similar to baptism, there's two ways to join the believing community. If a stranger alien came in, they would have to voluntarily profess faith to Israel's God and be circumcised. And the model of this we see in Abraham in Romans 4.11, that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith he had, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised. So we see that Abraham had faith, and he received circumcision as a seal and sign of the righteousness that comes by faith. Abraham had faith, but we see very soon his son Isaac is born and is circumcised on the eighth day. And so even though Abraham received circumcision as a sign of the righteousness of faith, his son immediately, without having that same experience, has a right to the covenant sign and recognition of membership in the covenant community. And so the Jewish church, going through scripture, they always knew that children were included among the people of God. It talks even about Ezra, when they read the law, they would bring the wives and the little ones to all sit under it. They were to uh, teach their children Deuteronomy 6 as they walked by the way, as they sit down, as they rise up. The children were, be, were to be trained in discipleship in the ways of God to follow God from the youngest age and were considered part of the covenant community. And so this is significant when we consider Peter's words in Acts 2, where Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord would call. So he's saying the promise This promise of Christ, the promise of the gospel, it's a promise that is given to you, it's also given to your children, and it's given to all who are far off. So that's pointing us to the fact that um, he's saying it's the same as it was before. The promise is for you as God's people, and it's also for your children, just as the way it's always been, right? The Jews that are hearing his message, they always have known their children are part of the believing community. And he's saying, it's to you and to your children, but the new thing is that it's now to all who are far off. That is the Gentiles, those that had formerly not been in the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, the gospel is going forth and the promise is going to to receivers, their children, but all peoples now outside of Israel's boundaries. And he says, it's as many as the Lord our God shall call. That's not referring to the internal call. It's not as many as the Lord will internally call to faith but call externally by the preaching of the gospel. And actually one of the biggest arguments for the fact of the ability of infants to receive this covenant sign is the fact that there would have been an uproar in the Jewish community if all of a sudden all their children were excluded from the church. 
So imagine if you're a Jewish family, your children have been circumcised, um, they've been recognized as members of the covenant community, but as soon as you become a Christian, they say, no, your children cannot join the covenant community until they profess faith in Christ. What would be happening there is basically all their children would be excommunicated instantly. All the children that had standing in the church by virtue of their connection to believing parents, they say, the new covenant is more true and internal. Therefore, your, all your kids are out until they come and acknowledge it themselves. And if you consider how big of a deal circumcision was in the controversies in the early church, this surely would have been a huge controversy, but we never see it addressed because the promise was for them and still for their children. The new covenant wasn't less gracious than the old covenant. It's more gracious. It includes the children of believers and goes on to include all peoples to the ends of the earth as the gospel goes forth. And so it makes sense that some of the normative language of the examples of baptism in scripture are these, these languages of household baptisms. Uh, here's a few texts. 1 Corinthians 1.16, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Acts 16, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well. Acts 16, and uh, this is of the Philippian jailer. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Now, some, we don't know whether there were infants or young children in these households, but that's irrelevant to the point because this language of the household being baptized is significant. We hear household language in the New Testament all the time, and this language of the faith and the allegiance of households is still used in the New Testament. The household is baptized. This, um, this covenant solidarity in the family is something that the New Testament acknowledges along with the Old Testament. And so this makes sense of how the New Testament treats children in general with this gracious inclusion in the covenant people of God in the visible church. So consider Jesus's actions. This is in all three synoptic gospels, but Luke 18, we read that they brought unto him also infants that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called unto them and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now what's sometimes missed here is why they were bringing the children to Jesus. It says they brought him that he would touch them. Now what is this referring to? Well, we can't know 100%, but it seems most likely people... Um, rabbis would touch people and bless them, right? You remember the Aaronic blessing, the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you. That's what they did with outstretched hands and they would bless people that way. And these people, knowing Jesus is a great prophet, they want to bring him their children that he might bless them, that he might touch them, speak God's favor over to them. And um, people think that this is not fit for these children to receive. They don't want them, they think people shouldn't be bringing their children to Jesus to receive his blessing in this way. But Jesus does not forbid them. He welcomes the children and does touch them and bless them and says that of such is the kingdom of God. And the grammar there can't hold an interpretation that would say um, people who act like little children in faith to them belong the children of God. Um, it is of these ones he's talking about, these infants he's holding in his arms and blessing. And if you think about it, it's like when our children are in church with us, 
do they get to truly receive the benediction that the pastor gives at the end? That the Lord would bless them and keep them, make his face to shine upon them and give them peace. Even though I grew up in a Baptist household, my parents spoke that benediction over me. They recognized implicitly that I was deserving of God's blessing by being a part of their household. So that's how we see how Jesus treats children. And it's a recognition that the children of believers are categorically different than the children of this world. Uh, we see, again, a hint of this in 1 Corinthians 7.14, where this question is coming up in the congregation about what is the status of the household when one of the spouses is unbelieving and one of the spouses is believing. What does this mean for the marriage? What does this mean for the children? How are the children going to be considered? If you have a holy seed and an unholy seed coming together, do the children receive the unholiness or the holiness? Now, if you think in the Old Testament, when someone touched something unclean, they became unclean. Whereas in the New Testament, we see a reversal where when Jesus touches the unclean, when the apostles touch the unclean, the unclean become clean. So there's actually a reversal here. And the idea is that... Um, I will read, read the verse. Um, he says, The unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the should-be-believing husband, else your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So he is not saying here that the unbelieving spouse is made holy themselves by the believing spouse, what he's saying is that when the holy seed meets with the unholy seed, the holiness wins. So when the seeds come together, the seed is still considered the holy seed. And therefore, the children, they do not receive the defilement categorically as a status, but they receive the blessings of the holy spouse, of the believing spouse. And therefore, they get to be counted as a holy seed. It says, the children are not unclean, but they are holy. And that doesn't mean internally holy in their hearts. It means they are, as the word literally means, set apart. They are categorized differently than unbelieving pagan children. They're um, entitled there to the blessings of the believing household. And what's really cool here is that in the graciousness of the New Testament, the household doesn't go with just what the husband believes. It's not an unbelieving household if the husband is unbelieving. The believing spouse, even if it's in that time period, a woman, the household gets the privileges of her faith, which is really um, countercultural at that time. And the children are considered holy. And this is helpful to note um, the first vow in our OPC baptism vows is the one that people have the most trouble with. It's um, where we say that we confess that even though our children are sinners and guilty in Adam, they are holy by virtue of the covenant of grace and therefore ought to be baptized. And it's just important that we understand those terms rightly, that they are externally holy by virtue of the external administration of the covenant of grace, okay? If people internalize those, you get to some wacky outcomes like children being saved by baptism or having this uh, latent faith that kind of exists, but not really. It causes lots of problems. So when we're using that language, we're just using the language of scripture, recognizing that by virtue of being part of the church faith community and a believing household, our children are set apart. There's something uniquely privileged about their position. And that we, um, we show that by giving them the sign of baptism and raising them in the faith. 
And consider even more that when Paul's writing to the saints, right, he addresses his letters to the saints, he then specifies children in his direction specifically. In both Colossians and Ephesians, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. He's recognizing that among the saints, the church to which he's writing, children are a part of that and therefore can be admonished and encouraged just as the adults can because they're a part of the saintly set-apart community, even if they're not internally true saints. And so all this is to say that the status of children in the New Testament um, are they're categorized as disciples who are enrolled in the school of Christ. They're within the covenant community with regards to their membership in a believing household, and they are counted among the visible people of God, and so ought to receive the sign of covenant membership in baptism. Okay, so that's the basic argument for infant baptism, which is building on what we've seen about sacramentology in the last few weeks. And um, what's difficult about this is that it really runs the whole gamut of the scriptures. Uh, there's a lot of information on these things, and it ties into a lot of different doctrines, and that's where the complexity can come from. But um, that's our basic treatment there. Uh, and I was hoping we'd have some extra time for questions. So we do got an extra about five minutes. So if anyone's have questions or comments, things to add. Yes? Um, I think one of the more troubling sections for me in all of this would be that Acts 16 where we talk about Lydia believed and then her household was baptized, the Philippian jailer believed his household was baptized. As I've done you know, some looking at commentaries and whatnot, um, some of the historical context that the household would have included servants and anybody that lived you know, within that household. Um, so as I think through that, that could mean, and we're not explicitly told Lydia's husband believed or that she even was married, um, or the servants that were adults believed. It just says they were all baptized. So have you come across anything that helps to reconcile some of that, like the adults being baptized that did they profess faith? <laughs> yeah, I think we can assume safely that if the adults, if there were adults in the household, they would, you would have to consent to it, right? So you think of the example of Abraham's servants were circumcised, but clearly they were willing to, right? They weren't um, under such obligation. They could have left. And so what we would say is that you never baptize someone that is unwilling to receive the sign. So even if a child is, say, 10 or 12, and they're saying, I don't believe this, I don't want a part of this new church thing, they ought not be baptized. Um, once someone is capable of professing faith, we have to baptize based on their profession. And so um, it says with the Philippian jailer that he rejoiced with all his household. So it seems that everyone who would have been of the age capable of rejoicing would have rejoiced. But the real question is for those that would be incapable of actually exercising faith with the mental assent it takes to do that, they get to receive the sign in the expectation that they will be raised in the faith and grow into it, in a sense, from a young age. So, yeah, you never baptize someone that's unwilling to receive the sign and who being capable of professing faith isn't professing. Um, do, does that help? Sort of. I'm just thinking from that context, I don't know that a servant would, I don't know, wait, would they? I mean, wouldn't they just do what the master said to do? Or right. And that's where we have that, yeah. Well, some do. <laughs> that, especially at that time period, I mean, you would stone your son if they disobeyed, right? I mean, to a certain extent. So for me, that's just been sort of the, 
Right. And I think that goes back, I think it goes back to that judgment of charity, right? Yeah. So if the teenager and you're like, I'm not totally sure their heart's fully on board, but if they're outwardly saying, yes, I trust Christ and I will follow him, we'd give them the judgment of charity and allow them to receive that. Just as we would with someone that's just come off the street, professed faith, we'd say, we're not sure if this faith is going to stick. It's like the seeds in the soil, but it might soon get choked out. Um, we trust their profession and give them a judgment of charity. And that's why we discipline when people aren't living up to their profession. So, any other ones? Yeah, Pete. Have time here. Can you maybe explain um, your comments there about baptism? You looking back at it kind of as an assurance or confirmation of your um, faith. Um, and I follow your what you were saying there, but I can see also a danger. I've talked to people, I'm sure most people I've talked to people who live a completely godless life, but yet point back at their baptism and say, mm-hmm. I'm going to go to heaven because of that. So. Hmm. Yeah, I, I probably haven't uh, ex- come across those people much in my circles um, who would actually think they're being saved because they're baptized. But um, yeah, I guess it's you're, if you're thinking, considering a pastoral context, um, of course, that's why we have church discipline, right? So if someone's baptized and they're living out of accordance with their profession, they'll be disciplined and eventually, at, least, at the very least, admonished, rebuked. So I'm thinking of the sincere person who is, which I've seen a few times, is just wrestling with, I don't know if I'm really saved. They might want to come and be a member of a new church and be like, but like, I don't know if I'm really saved. And it's helpful to say, have you been baptized? Well, it's like, yes. Like, well, then the church, they confirmed your profession and they received you and let us in a sense, encourage you to say that we see you confessing faith. We see you wrestling with wanting to believe, wanting to be holy, and your doubts seem more to be sincere doubts that only a believer would have. And therefore, in a sense, um, allow the testimony of the church to encourage you in your faith. Um, just as we can feel down about ourselves for our sins a lot of the time, and have external confirmation to people say, I know you're struggling, but I see your zeal for the Lord. I see you wanting to follow him. And I think that's what can be helpful, having that um, external stamp from the church to someone saying, you're a part of us. You haven't been church disciplined. You're not excommunicated. You're a part of us and allow that to encourage you to press on in greater faith. D- does that help a bit? Yeah. Yeah, and I guess ultimately I think you're implying to that a true assurance of faith, right, lies in the finished work of Christ and by us then living out. Yeah, I know a lot of people talk about, you know, three tiers of assurance, right? The base tier is you tr- is trusting the promises of God. Second, smaller tier, obedience to God's commands. Smallest tier is the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. But I think in that we kind of miss the external confirmation of the church. And the problem is kind of like I said, because our hearts are in a lot of ways invisible to us, you can get really lost just looking deeper and deeper and deeper. And that question, it's like, well, I'm doing good works, but am I really doing them for good motives? Am I really? And I think just to be able to jump outside of yourself and get that outside confirmation, I think can help um, get people out of that spiraling cycle. Yeah. That may be what I'm going for. Yeah. Okay, maybe time for one more. Or not, we're actually over time, so.
And we'll cap it there. Alrighty, thanks everybody. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you bring us into a church family where we can encourage one another in our faith when we're feeling down, when we're doubting. Thank you for the voices of our brothers and sisters that encourage us. Lord, and would you encourage us by your word and spirit even today as we worship. Lord, we do pray for the children in this church, the children we recognize who have privileges, privileges of growing up under the preaching of the gospel, the privileges of growing up with parents who want to disciple them in the ways of the Lord. And we pray that these baptized children would in time come to appropriate all that their baptism symbolizes, that their faith would be applied to that symbol they received, and that their faith and repentance would be strengthened as they're reminded that you do wash those who repent, that Christ's blood does cover each one of us entirely, and that in him we can be presented pure and blameless and above reproach in your sight. So Lord, bless our time of worship, bless the families of Grace Fellowship, and each one of us as we worship you today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.